Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Thank you for joining me the first Monday of every month in Transformation Change Radio. I'm so excited to welcome my guest, Dr. Shelley Tachluk. We're going to explore the dynamics of how do you find more whites in your organization, in your community, who really want to come together to do our own self-work, our own learning, so we can be better partners, change agents, work productively with folks of color and not just keep replicating racist dynamics and white supremacist attitudes when we think we're showing up. And Shelly, when I was uh, preparing for this, I was remembering when I was starting out in higher education, I worked at a college, this was three decades plus ago, but I could care less about doing white work. I don't, I didn't think I could have told you what white privilege was. I was so focused on sexism and homophobia and diversity in general that if anybody had said, come to this white affinity space, come on, I would have just written them off because I was just much more aware of my own needs and what I was wanting to create the world. I had no idea of how my own racist actions were perpetuating racism. It took me years to find the willingness, the humility, and then the spaces to begin to look at my own racist attitudes and white privilege. So I'm excited for us today because I really want this conversation to help whites who are listening, as well as some folk of color, multiracial folk, indigenous folk, who may want to share this information with white colleagues. How can we accelerate the speed and the investment so that whites deepen their capacity sooner than I did, so that we have more people showing up, dismantling racism, partnering with folk of color effectively? And what I know is, for me, it took a lot of self-awareness, education, and especially white caucus spaces. So I want to welcome you, Dr. Shelley Tatchlik, to this, and thank you for joining me. I just want to talk a bit about you, and then I'm going to invite you in, because I remember meeting you, I'll bet, eight to ten years ago, maybe, at the White Privilege Conference. Now, folks listening may have an initial reaction to that topic, White Privilege Conference, but actually, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. started that 20 years ago to bring people together across the nation and world to really look at how do you dismantle race and particularly having whites look at our own privilege. And so I attended a workshop that you and some colleagues from AWARE LA did, Anti-Racist Everywhere LA. And I was just really impressed with not only your comprehensive approach, but really how you got, what, 60 plus people every Saturday coming together to do their own work as whites in a real strong container of community. And then I was really impressed with the resources you shared, not only through the AWARE website, but your personal website. So today, as we share, I know you'll talk about your two books, Witnessing Whiteness, which I read most of this weekend, Living in the Tension, 
and you come out of 10 years experience of California public schools in the urban areas, and now you share what you know to help other teachers be socially just, racially just, conscious educators at Mount St. Mary's University. So with that, welcome, Shelley. Could you just tell us a little more about yourself and why you think white racial affinity spaces, caucuses are so critical for us as we work to dismantle racism? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's just an absolute pleasure and um, a wonderful joy to be able to spend this time talking with you. Um, I think it might have been close to 13 years ago, actually, that we did that workshop. Yes, and and I will say that at the time that we did it, it was it it was the evolution of the sort of caucus and or affinity space had not been very far along, and so it was a great risk. Um, and in fact, there was a lot of pushback given to white folks working together in rooms just by themselves at that time. And um, over the last, you know. 10 to 15 years, there's just been a huge transition of people recognizing the value of this kind of space. For me, just as well as you, I didn't, I didn't come out imagining that this was the kind of thing I would ever want to do or need to do. In fact, um, I became sort of conscious about the need to pay attention to myself as a white person and how I was bringing race into the room and bringing race and racism everywhere I went um, by people of color I was working alongside. Um, my employment place at the time was working at a public school that served predominantly um, black and African-American uh, and um, and then Latinx students as well. And the faculty mirrored the student population. So I was one of maybe five people um, who were white on campus. And so I, I was pushed a bit more to recognize, oh, there's something you need to pay attention to. Um, it still took a really long time before I started to understand, oh, actually, it's not just learning about racism that I need to pay attention to. I need to learn about what I'm bringing to the, to the issue. And so thankfully, as I was in the midst of a deep dive, actually doing research, thankfully, I was in a doctoral program at that time and one that allowed me to focus in on a question that was deeply personal, which was, what do I do with myself? Now that I'm a white person who recognizes that issues of whiteness are important, what does that mean? And so I went out in search of people who could help me understand how to live my life better, <laughs> more completely um, as a person <laughs> dedicated to justice and whatnot. It was at that time of my life that I actually received an email from someone that said, hey, there's a bunch of white people who are going to get together to talk about how to do anti-racism. And I showed up to that meeting. It was the very first meeting of AWARE. 15 years ago. And I didn't even really know what I was showing up to. Um, but it's it's been a tremendous ride since then. So um, what I think the question you asked, though, was, you know, why is this so important? What has been so deeply important for me is that this is the place I get to go where I can say what I need to say, I can ask the questions I need to ask without worrying about injuring somebody else where I'm not expecting people of color to tell me their tales of horror and difficulty, um, but I can still advance my own learning so that when I am in multiracial spaces, that's the point when I can engage better. Um, one of the things that I've really learned over time is that I myself as a white person growing up in not only a society and culture, but in my own particularity as a person who had parents who are not avowed racist, but they were avowed colorblindness fans. 
right? So this is definitely that culture of, we don't want to talk about race. If you just don't talk about it, it's all going to get better and everything's going to be great. So I didn't learn how to talk about this conversation. I didn't know how to navigate the minefield that is race until I was, you know, in my mid to late twenties. And so what the aware white caucus, white affinity space has allowed me to do is catch up. It helps me to learn the language I need so that when I do meet in a multiracial context, it's not people of color teaching me all the time. It's actually a shared conversation amongst colleagues who can really get somewhere and be more productive. I love it. You're helping me remember my first white caucus was at University of Massachusetts Amherst. I was in my doctoral program. There was a weekend workshop on racism and I went expecting people of color to teach me and when they said there's going to be a white caucus, I was like, oh, no, I'm like, whites are boring. I don't want to be around whites. I can't learn anything, which are very common things I hear from whites and kind of our resistance. And then I remember going to that caucus and getting as small as I could. I bet I didn't say a word unless I had to, because the truth was under my judgment of boring was also they're going to find out I have racist attitudes. They're going to find out as if whites and mostly people of color for sure don't know already. And so if, if you're working with an organization or the people listening are, or they want to start something in the community, how can they get more whites concerned? You know, whites like me that might be wanting to help people of color. I remember being a teacher or I was in teacher training. And even when I started doing consulting, I was helping people of color, that paternalistic, arrogant and sense of, um, you know, patronizing, so condescending. I'm just getting all these words. And so I didn't get that I was coming from a white supremacist, we're better, people of color deficit. So how do you get whites that think all we have to do is be polite and nice and interrupt that horrific racism from white supremacists, but it's not me. How do we get those whites willing to participate in affinity spaces or even beginning to get interested? Yeah, so I tend to be really strategic in this conversation. And sometimes that means that the strategies I use aren't the ones that address privilege immediately. Um, I will use privilege if I have to, to get folks into the room. Um, I will use softer language if I have to, to get people into the room. There are a lot of ways to talk about these issues without coming straight with all the guns blaring. Um, and one of the things that I have personally found, um, and it depends where you are, it depends on the organization. So I'll just speak to what if you have an organization that is ultimately multiracial, um, but maybe not predominantly so. Um, what I've seen extremely useful is to, it's not about going slow, but it's about building the buy-in from the ground up. Um, I personally wouldn't suggest that a good-hearted, well-intentioned white person show up and just say, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to start a white affinity space. Here we go. I think that that breeds all sorts of challenges. Um, the first thing is to create a cohort of people who have buy-in in that organization or on that campus or within that, you know, um, that space to say, what is it that we're looking for? What's the vision of this thing? Why is it important to create that articulation of what those values are going to be and how it's going to relate, not just to the white people, but the people of color that might be impacted, affected, or, or whatnot? Because in developing the language around that, then when you launch, you, are, you have a, a more solid footing. Because people will talk. The minute you say that you're 
deciding to do something like this, it will spread like wildfire. And the two or three people minimally in your organization who will be extremely upset, and that's a conservative estimate, um, will be very loud. <laughs> um, and, and, and it will catch fire if there's not a lot of good pre-planning um, and base building, really. I love the base planning. So it might be people find a friend or a colleague or maybe start with reading your book, my book, Robin D'Angelo's Wife Fragility. So even a book club, which is one way to do caucuses, but it could be something that's not quite an affinity space or just let's learn a little bit. The other thought I had was, is the organization doing diversity training? And if they're doing it, can we have more infusion of race and whiteness in that? and or a standalone looking at racism and why we need to look at race to more effectively serve our increasingly racially diverse clients as well as create an environment that's inclusive for increasing our differences of all kinds but particularly folk of color indigenous folks so if it's done in a a regular training to get more awareness and then you say and by the way we've been working with leadership we've been talking to the employee resource group of color and together with some of their support and suggestion, they said, what if we pull together some folks of whites to just continue the dialogue about what's our role in creating an inclusive, racially just organization. So building it into systems that are already created and really partnering with the people of color, if there is an employee resource group. Yeah, I think I think all of that's a great idea. If you're, if you're starting at an organization where there is currently very little to nothing, then certainly doing some primary education on what is race, what is racism and all that stuff that might be multiracial in nature and broader in nature certainly can get the conversation going. And this is something that I did myself is I just started trying to pay attention to who's showing up. Who are the people who are showing up within my organization who have some level of openness to this conversation? And so let's just track it out a little bit. So if, if there is some kind of programming that can start, even if it's just a even a volunteer base, um, people come who want to come, not a mandated type of program, then who's the one who's showing up and then invite those folks to lunch and hey, how could we expand this? What do you think about this? Talking to, making sure that's a multiracial conversation, maybe not to start out with, it might be just getting two or three or four other white folks involved to say, hey, I, I've been thinking about wanting to do more conversation about this. Could you be a conversational partner with me as I try to figure it out? Um, and then also reaching out either that small group or by one person to some folks of color who also are approaching this work to say, hey, we're wanting to make stronger inroads about this topic. Can we have some conversations? Because that's the preliminary formation of potential accountability partnership. Right. And so you want to at least start those conversations at the absolute ground floor. And quite frankly, it may not be very quick because there might need to be a lot of development of understanding of what is even the value of going this route um, amongst each other and then do that. And let's just keep playing it out further. So I'm thinking about some other organizations, if you don't mind me going on a bit, <laughs> some other organizations I've seen, I've seen do this, which is, okay, if we've got a set of people who are invested, right? They're invested in the conversation at the very least, but we don't really know very much. And this is where a lot of people are. I care. I know there's something going on, but I actually don't even have all the language I need. One of the biggest mistakes I think that can be made is to immediately launch into, let's have an affinity group, let's pull people together and not have a solid structure and not have the content necessary. And that is, to be honest, where 
the Witnessing Whiteness book can come in. There are other books too. I think Waking Up White can be really effective and wonderful if the environment you're in is um, really needing to, to have a soft entry that's very, you know, sort of personal narrative. I really like that resource for that. Mine has a little, the Witnessing Whiteness curriculum has a little bit more of a research background. It brings in other voices. Um, it goes a bit more deeper, comprehensive into some of the other, um, what you do with the information sorts of ideas in terms of how to build an anti-racist practice. But either of them have either discussion guidelines or workshop curriculums that go through it. So what I've often seen people do is say, we don't have a solid group yet, but let's do this as a book group. Even if it's not institutionally mandated or even overseen, but let's get the crew of us together because if we go through this whole thing, then maybe we can approach leadership and talk about how hosting one of these might be useful. And to be honest, if you've gone through a cycle of that, then you might be in a better position to take the next cycle and start inviting more people in. And it can actually become a spiraling experience where more and more and more people get drawn in because people around them are having positive experiences, talking about it, using shared language, so it avoids some of the confusion that often befalls these sorts of experiences where everyone shows up with their varied and very different um, experiences and you never actually get anywhere because you never have a foundation. And so without some trained facilitators, these book clubs or if they do some book readings may get them some of the competencies they need to at least be a little farther along and a little clearer and then my book, But I'm Not Racist, Tools for Well-Meaning Whites, also has a book guide that folks can use. I've had people use it, especially the first five or six chapters, just to give it a little structure. If you're just starting out, deepening the competency of the folks that are energized and get them more excited, skilled, and then, as you said, bring more folks in. As you were talking about the collecting information about what are the racist microaggressions is another way to get interest as well as organizational buy-in, whether that's maybe a survey, having people in different workshops write out in my workshop materials gallery activity so that we're collecting voices, generic examples of race dynamics. And as you were talking, I had a brand new idea, which is why I love dialogues like this. I was like, ooh, what if in a survey you ask or in a workshop, what do you want whites doing differently? What are the problematic behaviors of whites and what are the more effective, inclusive, racially just behaviors? And that might actually help set the curriculum for what you want to do in some of those caucus work, but also help to get leaders and HR buy-in because some of the resistance is going to be strong. Ooh, whites getting together, they're just going to be talking about how to be more, even more racist. So a lot of communication needs to happen. So let me ask you this. There are all different kinds of caucuses. When we started the Social Justice Training Institute and we did the second year where we um, did the race immersion, we decided to do caucuses and I'd never, I don't think read, led one. Um, and so I was leading one based on what I thought would be useful and the consulting work that I'd been doing with LCY Cross Associates and other places. So I didn't have this understanding that it's important to have knowledge and a lot of knowledge, a lot of self-awareness is where I actually itself at Social Justice Training Institute, we do all the socialization, racist attitudes, behaviors, internalized dominance. We do some skill development. How do you, intervene in your own racist attitudes and in others, but mostly it's that self-awareness we do. Capacity to take action at the systems level, 
intervening in policies and practices, building coalitions, community building. So if you could talk a bit about knowledge, self-awareness, skill building, capacity to take action, community building in your own work, aware, just what are some of the outcomes that you have found? And I don't know if there's a, what's this? Sequencing, scaffolding that could be useful, or do you just do an assessment of where people are and where they wanna go? What's been your experience or what do you recommend? Yeah, so um, a couple of things to get into that. One is you're absolutely right. There are different types of spaces. And not only that, but the language has different meanings. And this is something that I arrived to understanding very, very late in the game. There are very different understandings out there and definitions for what it means to have a caucus versus an affinity group. And so I have used them interchangeably for very, very many years. And we are even here in this call. Um, what I've more recently realized is that um, when we talk about affinity space, what we're really talking about is a group of people getting together in order to sort of support each other, share each other's, um, you know, in building each other's understanding, et cetera, et cetera, because we have something in common, a shared affinity. The affinity is the shared aspect of our identity process. So many schools will have affinity spaces for different groups of different, you know, demographics in their schools. So the term caucus is a little bit more formal, and that is why we would see it being like the Black Caucus in congressional experiences, you know, or something like that, that has a little bit more of an organizational flavor to it. And what I'm finding valuable in paying attention to this difference is you might be at an organization where there is no such any type of, um, of support system for anybody, and therefore creating an affinity space might be a very first step of white people taking responsibility for self-education on this topic. You might be at an organization where it is a bit fuller in terms of it being multiracial, and if you, there is a lot of pushback, if there are a lot of people that are saying, well, why would we only have something for white folks? then a caucus structure actually might be a good choice to have a, a white caucus and have, let's say, a people of color caucus or a bi and multiracial caucus. And the benefit that can come of that is that those various spaces can then have an integrating relationship on occasion. Um, and so that can set up, especially in an organization, it can set up feedback loops where some of that back and forth of this is this is what we're hearing, this is what we're taking back into caucus, and this is what we're putting back to the organization. And so if your organization's ready for that kind of structure, it can actually help advance some more policy systems type change work. Um, so anyway, just to say that, um, from the standpoint of the, whether it's caucus or affinity space, we're still talking about white people getting together with white people. And so what's the purpose of that? What are we trying to do in that space? Well, here's where the difference is. So for, for white folks, some of the pushback against white folks getting into affinity space in the past, and tell me if you remember this one, Kathy, is, well, white people don't need an affinity space. They just have to go to their grocery store or they can just go out to their soccer teams or what, whatnot because they're with their own people all the time. And the insight that we had with AWARE was that not anti-racist white people, because if you decide to really take anti-racism seriously and start talking about it a lot, you will find yourself pushed away and pushed out of a lot of white spaces too, or at least it becomes uncomfortable. It certainly isn't a place where you can learn how to do that work better. And so the affinity for white folks is explicitly to become more anti-racist. 
It is about that identity process. And that's where that self-awareness part comes in is what does that mean <laughs> to be a white anti-racist person? What, what are the activities? What's the culture around that? How are we trying to create different patterns of being and, and ways of navigating our organizations that fit into what it means to be an anti-racist white person? So that's part of it is that identity development piece. And sure, I think that there are some, there are certain um, uh, resources that are really helpful for that identity piece. I think witnessing whiteness is, is why I created that one. Um, I think the Debbie Irving work is part of that. Um, I think White Fragility also um, handles that. All three of those books um, really are, are doing that work. Um, from a flow perspective, I have heard a good amount of feedback that unless there is extremely strong facilitation support, it can be tough to go into the White Fragility book as a first starter. And the reason is because when you read the first few chapters, a lot of the content there is very much condensed that you almost need preparation. I remember reading the book myself and there was multiple times where I would stop and say, oh, that paragraph right there? That paragraph right there takes about three hours to process of a lot of information. I know what it means, but if I were just starting, I would have no idea how to relate to it. Um, and yet, so a little bit of pre-work before getting to that work can be useful because it's a fantastic, don't get me wrong, it's a fantastic resource. It's just, it's got a lot to it. And what you don't want to do is have people run screaming from the room right away, right? Um, that's where that self-awareness part comes in. Um, but to your other point, um, and especially with structure, um, so what's the knowledge that we need to have? Sure, we need knowledge of self, but what about the knowledge of how racism is operating in the world outside of just us? What are the different types of race racism? It's not just internal, there's interpersonal, and there's institutional, and then there's a wider cultural. So all of that sort of historical and contemporary racism, we need to know that stuff. We need to know not just the bad stuff that's happened, but what have been the anti-racist efforts? What can we learn from those past efforts? So that's a whole category of work to be done. Another whole category of work to be done is what's the skills building? Okay, I might know myself and I might have myself put together. I even know how racism is operating. What are the actual interpersonal skills that I need to be able to disrupt something when it's happening and or make a move to correct something when something's gone awry. That's a whole set of skills building that takes role play and all sorts of brainstorming and, and development. And there's a different category too. There's a whole other category, which is the capacity building, which is how do I just understand my internal frame of reference, my emotions, how do I avoid that deer in the headlights experience or feeling really triggered and then losing my frontal lobe's ability to process and operate in a moment, that's a harder one. It's long-term work. <laughs> and, um, and then I would say that there's another whole category that gets missed, which is the, the pulling us together into a sense of community, that we really have to rely, have people to rely on. Doing this as individuals doesn't really work so well. And so in terms of the group that I've been operating with most, um, and when I support people to move outside of a purely book group, starter place is you do all of them. You know, that's where the structure is so important. How do you do a rotation so that this ongoing work is consistently rotated and you're not forgetting about any one of those particular categories? And I'll just do a quick plug now for how to locate that kind of resource when you get used to it. 
which is um, on the aware.org or awarela.org website. Um, in one of the what we do, there's a toolkit area. And, and um, one of the toolkits is the White Anti-Racist Culture Building Toolkit. And we have all the resources that we have used and been using. I mean, it includes our foundational documents, our philosophy documents, sample scripts of what we use, sample and template agendas for what we use. And you can see how we have decided to rotate a certain set of four structures that work for us. They might not be the structures you need, um, but they do allow us to do a rotation. Um, but I can also, Kathy, if you're interested at some point, share what I've seen as a most comprehensive continuing cyclical structure that uses one book to get more and more and more and more people involved. And then people build off into this other more ongoing space. So there's lots to talk about. Lots of people doing great work out there. There are. And speaking of great work, as we move to break, thanks for giving the AWARE website. Can you also tell people how they can get in touch with you? And if you have any fun programs or services or new books coming out? Okay, so my name is hard to spell, but easy to pronounce. Um, so you just look up myname.com, shellytechluck.com. That's, that's S-H-E-L-L-Y, just one E, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and then touchluck, T-O-C-H-L-U-K. So shellytechluck.com. And on that um, website are links to all sorts of things. Um, it's got a full and free curriculum downloads for um, an entire set of 30 hours worth of content related to witnessing whiteness. Um, my other book also has a workshop series you might want to explore. It's also got a page that will take you straight to AWARE. And one of the things that AWARE does, and it's a little too late for this year, so I apologize for this, but we do have a program that we run every single summer called Unmasking Whiteness. And this is an on-site program in Los Angeles. It's four days. It's white affinity space where white folks get together about 50 to 60 people all getting together to spend four days just deep diving into what does all of this mean? What do we need to know in order to be able to do this work well? And there's a link on the website to that as well. I have no doubt everyone is feeling so grateful and appreciative to how generous, aware, and you are in just sharing so many resources for folks. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And if you want other resources, you can download my book, but I'm not racist, always complimentary. My website, drkathyobear.com backslash. I'm not racist, no apostrophe, just all one word. I'm not racist. If you want the complimentary worksheets where you'll get um, not only the book club guide, but also a great, uh, I think it's 96 competencies that I want white accomplices and change agents to have. You just go to drkathyobear.com backslash race book, all one. If you want to watch a webinar for free that I did about a year ago, interrupting racism backslash racism webinar. And finally, if you're interested in deepening your capacity to design and facilitate equity inclusion, social justice workshops in general, and white workshops in particular, backslash facilitation course, all one word. And with that, let's take a break. You've been listening to Transformation Change Radio. We'll come back in a few minutes, but I'm not racist, creating impactful white affinity accountability spaces. 
Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Stephan each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Celebrating 40 years of peace through music. Dr. Pat Basili is thrilled to be partnering with Dudley and Dean Evanson, co-founders of Soundings of the Planet. Music and video created for peace and healing. Immerse yourself in benefits of music for meditation, relaxation, and stress reduction. This peaceful and meditative form of music is available for free on all streaming services. Search Dean Evanson on Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and iTunes, or visit soundings.com for more information. Do you want the knowledge and wisdom to understand where spirituality, science, and psychology intersect? Then join the Karmic Path Radio Show with Tina and Laura on TransformationTalkRadio.com, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Follow this charmingly, disarmingly dynamic duo as they explore how psychic ability, spirituality, and karmic law tie together. For more information on Tina, Laura, and their groundbreaking work, visit TheKarmicPath.com. It's time to step into the power of yes. Creating the life you want is up to you. The power comes from saying yes to ourselves, yes to possibilities, and yes to change. Are you ready? Start achieving your goals and moving life in the direction you want. Tune in each month to Yes Minded Power Radio with Barbara Scheidegger to start living your future now. For more information about the show and working with Barbara, visit yesmindedpower.com. What is a brilliant culture and how do we create them? Why are they important? Claudette Rowley has created a breakthrough five-step process to help you align your culture with your business strategy for exceptional results. Looking for a culture that drives organizational excellence? Listen to Cultural Brilliance Radio, the second and fourth Friday of each month at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. To learn more or work with Claudette, visit culturalbrilliance.com. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear here with Dr. Shelley Tuxlock, and I'm so excited to continue talking about how do we create white affinity caucus accountability spaces. And I just have a couple reflections before the break. We shared a lot of books by whites, and I wanted to share a couple. I love this book. I'm still here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, Austin Channing Brown. She does a lot of consulting and speaking, and primarily... Christian organizations, and as an African-American woman, I found for her, as a white person, I found her work transferable. And there's one chapter in there about microaggressions from the moment she wakes up through the day going to work. And so there might be pieces and chapters of different books. The other one I'm thinking about is Dr. Beverly Tatum's work, um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sit in the Cafeteria? Her second edition is just out. Wonderful things in there, particularly around white racial identity development. So 
just, you know, you can take the books we're using as well as others. And for whites particular, I'd want to make sure we bring in some folk of color. So just to remind whites that again, whites aren't superior. In fact, most of what I know, I've been coached by folk of color over the years and one or two whites. The other thing I want to mention is um, one way to think about curriculum is do an assessment of where folks are and what they want to know. And so at my website slash race book, you can get, as I mentioned that those 96 competencies, what do people want? And so they can do from one to five, how much do they already demonstrate them? But that'll help them individually see their current capacities. They do pretty well. And it'll really help them have humility because I just retook it the other day, even though I wrote it. I'm like, geez, I have more to do. And so some type of self-assessment as well as organizational assessment might help the organization individuals get ready to come in. And one final thing, the titling of these is critical. When I was with NCORD, National Conference on Race and Ethnicity in Higher Ed, I'll bet six or eight years ago, I noticed they had phenomenal affinity caucus space for folk of color, indigenous, multiracial, biracial, but there weren't any for white. And so I just checked in with a couple whites who were elders, because this was my first time going to NCORE, you know, a couple thousand people. And so I checked in with some of the authors in this work, as well as people who had done a lot of work there. And they said, no, we'd never done one. Or we, that's my memory. And so I said, what do you think? They're like, yeah. So I went and then talked to the folks that organize NCORE, some of the folk of color who were the leaders in that organization. And I asked, and they were like, we'd love it. So got with another white person and we just announced it, put up flyers. But what I want to share about is it was an organization that was already doing very deep dismantling racism work. And so we knew we could come in looking and doing self-work and here's what we titled it. Whites partnering to dismantle racism. Whites partnering to dismantle racism. So I share that so that you intentionally have the name you choose, you run it by folk of color who are in leadership as well as doing this work so that you're telling people from the beginning and then of course some competencies and what's your purpose and all that. So welcome back, Shelly. I'm so delighted. This has been so much fun. Here's where I'd loved us to go. In all the work that I've done, there's just been a resistance and barriers when we start advertising and talking about it. Do you have any more strategies for how you can proactively minimize those barriers? Or once you've started white caucus accountability spaces, you start getting pushback from leaders, HR, whites, or people of color. Any strategies to proactively or reactively engage that level of curiosity, if not resistance and barriers? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think there, there are definitely, there's definitely more to be said about that. Um, one thing is that um, very early on within the first six months, uh, the folks who started gathering to have AWARE happen realized that many of us were out in our own educational organizational spaces and starting to talk about what it is that we were doing and started getting that the questioning, the pushback. And what we realized is that we ourselves didn't know how to articulate our purpose very well. And okay. so what we ended up creating was a document that is titled Why a White Space. And I think making sure that you have some kind of document that reflects your purpose and your vision um, is important. Feel free to use ours. It's available online as part of the documents, part of our toolkit. It's at awarela.org. A lot of other people have used that same document. I think that can help to get the foundation set 
but then also to then have that, make sure that people have it who are entering the space. And so they know how to talk about it. That will help a lot. And then secondarily to that is you need to talk to leadership about this. <laughs> but the leadership of your organization needs to be either, if not on board, then tacitly understanding and accepting. And, and, and if that's the case where they're not actually the drivers of this, then they need to, to know either how to talk about it or how not to talk about it. Oh, that's and good. so who is their resource to um, send people to when they get someone who inquires from the media or when somebody does push back on social media or some other, you know, customer um, starts to, to get wind of something if it's gone public. Um, I've been in consultation with a number of people who decide that they're proud of what they're going to do. And so they post a flyer online. I'm not sure that's a great choice. At this particular time, a very heightened partisanship, especially where anything related to diversity is getting dragged through the mud by online trolls, it may not serve your mission to be really loud about it until it's very well entrenched. And so for leadership, help them to understand what it is you're gonna be doing, why you're gonna be doing it, who is gonna be ready to be the explainer of these things. And so one other piece you're gonna to need to consider is yes, we're talking about white affinity space where it's designed for people who identify as white. Does that mean that it's exclusive? Does it mean that a person of color could not show up? And that's a very important conversation to have before you get going. And here's why. Because if you have leadership that's ready to say, we are fully prepared to explain why this is so necessary that this space exists, and that if somebody comes in and express interest or concern, we're gonna have sufficient conversation for that person to realize it's really not the right choice for them to arrive and therefore they're gonna choose not to show up. That may be just fine for you. That's what's worked for us with Unmasking Whiteness for all these years. And I was the person at both my institution when it was co-sponsoring it, as well as for AWARE, where people come to me and ask questions. And there have been times where I was on the phone with 45 minutes, four 45 minutes with an interested party who really just wanted to be a fly on the wall. But as we talked and as we talked about what that would do to the dynamics and what that person might learn or not learn through the experience, that person decided, well, maybe it's not the right place for me. And so the white space angle of it was allowed to be preserved. At the same time, keep in mind that biracial folks Biracial folks may have an, an aspect of white culture and white identity within them that they're wanting to explore and deal with themselves. And so while we would say that AWARE is the white space, we actually have had both people of color and biracial people who have said, I'm trying to work on the white cultural angle that I got raised into. Because of my unique experience, I actually feel that even though I have darker skin or I have this other more complicated identity reality, I also feel very much entrenched within white privilege and white culture. And so I wanna work on those things and build my capacity to have a stronger relationship with my parent or family or whomever. That's a wonderful reason to show up. Right? It makes things maybe slightly more interesting and nuanced in conversation, but all of that to say is that if your leadership understands what's going on, then they can help you stay out of trouble. Um, the other aspect that I spoke of earlier in terms of organizations, if you have the kind of structure at a bit more of a multiracial organization where there are multiple um, groups that are meeting, if not at the same time, 
then concurrently at least, then when a person of color says, I'd actually really like to go to the white space, you can then legally say, oh, actually this program has a place for you. So we're not keeping you away from something that you want to do. It's just that this is the space. And so that, that sort of paired process can also be supportive depending especially if you're at a public institution that has to worry about sort of the governmental regulations if you take public funding which a lot of the public universities um speaking to the point of how to make those things go well though kathy i know you want to get into some of those the dynamics i'm going to stop but i'm happy to jump into the dynamics too what happens in the space you know i had something i just lost it so keep going Okay, because I because I know one of the things that happens when once we get in there and this has to do not just with the why are we there and the how are we protecting the space, but what's the approach to the space, right? What, what really are we going to do with one another? And I think the most important thing you're going to face is a lot of people who assume that the whole reason for being there is to make white people feel bad, descend into a guilt-ridden place, and if you cry, then you've done something good which means a lot of people are afraid. They're afraid of feeling bad. They're afraid of being made to feel wrong and guilty. And it's essential that we start off and maintain an understanding that that is not at all what the purpose of the space is for. That's not the mode uh, the, at all of what the dynamic is supposed to be. And so um, another document that AWARE created is called Our Core Principles. That's what we learned over time that was most essential for us to have a positive experience with with each other. And it has a few key principles, a few of which I'll name. One of them is we don't shame each other. This is not a place to say you're not doing enough. You're not good enough. You didn't have the right experiences. You're not showing up as a good enough anti-racist person. We do none of that. We also are extremely clear that we don't want to compete with each other either. And that's what a lot of white folks end up doing is we get into the room and then we feel like we have to perform. We have to somehow have the right language. We have to demonstrate that we've been thinking about things in the right way or that we've interrupted racism in a way that we can get the good, hey, you did a good job and you know I'm the one who knows stuff now. And it's not the point either. And it's decidedly anti-racist to show up as a person who's saying we will not compete with each other. And in fact, we're gonna name it if we start to see ourselves descending into that particular dynamic. Um, and the other thing that um, I think is important is a huge insight that those of us in AWARE had the very first year was realizing that for a lot of us, this whole thing about what it meant to be white was really new. And it was hard actually to, to start to unpeel those layers. And it was kind of hard to be with people that we loved who also weren't seeing what we were seeing. Um, and then starting to make moves, starting to you know, use our voice for the first time, not only is that scary and intense uh, for many of us, but it also can be really frustrating when it is not received very well. And so one of the things that we came back and realized was we were generating a lot of anger and frustration. And, and the piece that was missing from anything we had found previously was messages from white people to white people saying, you know what, it's okay for us to love ourselves. It's okay for us to forgive ourselves because what was happening is we were so angry at the white person we just were last week that we were essentially ready to harass anybody who wasn't exactly where we were right then. And so the huge insight, just to say it as clearly as I can, is we realized if we don't love ourselves, 
as white people striving to be anti-racist, then we're not able to actually reach out effectively and with care and empathy to other white people who still need to move further on the journey to where we are currently finding ourselves so that they'll go with us so that we can work as partners in this program. So the, I'm the best white, let's find the racists in the room, judging others are all unproductive behaviors that I did with other whites. And so I know when I set up white caucus spaces, it's really critical that people learn we leave no one behind. We're all learning together. And um, the other thing, that new idea, I could imagine doing quick dyads where people go, what are some white caucus spaces you've been in that went really well? And what was it that was useful? And what were some that didn't meet your needs? And what were the behaviors of whites so that they're coming up with them? And then negotiating how we're going to be together. And then one other tool could be just getting a list of even 20 of these from your book, my book, brainstorming that people could do early of unproductive white caucus behaviors. When have you done them? What's been the impact and how could you show up differently? And for me, teaching folks how to relate in, see ourselves in each other, come for, as you said, that compassion, I'm just like you. And instead of you shouldn't have done that or my teaching you what you should have done, relating in. So I know I interrupt a lot when I'm leading a caucus. So when I see these unproductive behaviors, I'm like, can you tell me what you notice you're doing? Well, I'm just helping them be, okay, now let's slow down. What do you think the impact is when you tell whites what to do? I hate that. Okay. So relate in, tell me a story where you did just like what that white just shared. And so I'm teaching facilitation tools without naming it that I'm teaching whites how to engage with each other, whether it's in the workplace, home, community, where we come in, relating in, sharing a story, self as instrument, self-disclosure, without judgment and those sorts of things. Um, so we just have about five more minutes. I was just remembering a couple other books that I loved, Paul Kibble's work, Uprooting Racism, to get some of the concepts and history. And of course, Tim Wise now has a podcast as well as a bunch of books I do think it's important that we do know systemic racism and history. And yet, I think we whites try to intellectualize and let me figure out the problem and solve it as opposed to, for me, the work that I do with whites is, the problem is we've internalized white supremacist attitudes, we have racist attitudes and we react and act out of those. So let's do our self work first. And then I say, go read some books on history and let, but I start with the self work. So my last question for you is, as you've worked with folks in facilitation, how can we help people who are really interested? Yes, we said, get some people together, develop, but how can we get them deepening the capacity to truly design and facilitate in ways that help people move along, meet them where they are, don't shame, don't blame, but help them deepen competence. What are some ways that you know? I think we can learn a lot from each other. I think there are networks of people who are paying attention to this. And so getting hooked up with the network of people who are good at this and observing them. So Kathy, I know that you're running regular podcasts or you know ways that people can connect with you. Um, I, I've been a witnesser of your work for many years and I, I, I don't want to underestimate the value that what you offer is, um, is for people. Um, I've learned most of what I've learned, not through facilitation training, but watching other people host mm -hmm. these kinds of dialogues. And so attending other people doing this kind of 
work and just paying really close attention to what they do and what they say is tremendous. Maybe there are conferences or workshops or other trainings that you can go to just to just to get better at starting something. I think that makes a lot of sense too. Come to the White Privilege Conference and be part of the White Caucus that we run and that we've been a part of for over a decade collectively. Mesa, Mesa for two years is going to be there. Yeah, Mesa, Arizona, which is nearby Phoenix. <laughs> um, but that's going to be a really wonderful space to get to know one another. Um, also, um, if you are trying to start something in your location and you're just, they've got questions and you need people to just brainstorm with and hammer some ideas out with, I'm, I'm now offering an every third Sunday of the month online dialogue for about two hours at a time. And it's free. Anybody can um, sign up to join. And it's a Zoom call um, where we just get together and we share. And everybody's got about basically about 15 minutes or so to just name the question or concern they've got and get feedback from other people who are striving similarly. Um, and so in order to access that, go onto my website. It's posted there. And if you can't find it, sign up for my newsletter because it's always part of my newsletter every single month on the first of the month. A newsletter goes out via email. It's, it's a curated set of about six to eight links and resources that have passed through my brain um, through social media, regular media, what have you. Um, and it just offers some ways to stay in touch. So be in touch. Um, you'll then get a, a link and we'd love to help support you all. So one thing I want to say, can I say one more thing? Super quick. Um, the largest focused caucus work I've seen happen countrywide. This was started by a black woman. And she got a group of people together and here's how she started that caucus. She said, you know what? I'm so glad you're here. There's nothing you can say that will make me love you less. Mm. And I thought that was a beautiful way to start. I love it. They still oh, operate. You want to call out who they are in case people can find them? Yes, um, the YWCA in St. Louis, um, this, the founder of that program, Amy Hunter, is, is no longer running it, but it's been transferred over to Mary Ferguson. They've had over uh, 1,500 people go through the program citywide, and I think I'm underestimating. And YWs nationally all have a commitment to racial justice, whether your local one does or not. Nudge them in case they don't. Shelly, you are a treasure trove. I just so appreciate your generosity. Remind people one more time, your website and how they can contact you. We got one minute and we got to move on. It's ShellyTouchLick.com. If you can't remember how to spell it, just look up Witnessing Whiteness, the book, and my name is right there on it. So thank you so much for all you do, your work in the world. I look forward to Mesa, Arizona, White Privilege Conference, if not before. And again, if folks want to contact me, DrKathyOrberry.com backslash contact. And on the radio show, have all the resources from the Design and Facilitation Workshop course, just backslash facilitation course to my book, but I'm not racist, backslash I'm not racist, all one word, the backslash race book for all kinds of worksheets and the webinar backslash racism webinar. I'm Kathy O'Bear with Transformation and Change Radio. Join me the next time, August 5th, Monday. We're going to look at how to create inclusive, racially just classrooms from the start, inclusive, racially just teams from the start. Be very exciting. Shelly, thank you so much for joining me again. Y'all have a good month. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. 
Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.